Let's pray together. Father, even when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself. And so, Father, we appeal to you as our faithful Lord who loves us and who has given himself for us. Father, we thank you. And Father, we pray now that you would come to us as we open your word to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word, dear servants, as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, I signed up for an advanced placement English class that took place during my senior year. And it was a literature class, English literature class, preparing students to pass a placement exam. So it was one of those deals where you go through the year, at the end of the year, if you take a test and you score high enough, you can get college credit. And we all had to, the, the classic place during our senior year, but we had to commit to it during our junior year, and we had to agree that we would read uh, a novel over the summer. And so during the summer of 1990, I was supposed to read All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, and we were supposed to be done with it by the first day of class. I had every intention of reading that book by the first day of class, but things turned out a little bit differently than what I had planned. Um, all summer, I basically tooled around with my friends. I, I worked as a lifeguard at our local country club. I, uh, I frittered the whole summer away doing the things that teenagers do, and I did a lot of things over the summer, but what I didn't do was read that book. And so, at least not all of it. And so by the time school started, I had probably only read a handful of pages in that book. And on the first day of class, my English teacher, Miss Roberts, she planned to lead us in this discussion of this book. And so she began asking us questions about Willie Stark and the political life of Louisiana in the early 20th century. And she found herself facing not just me, but an entire classroom of blank stares. And when she asked for a show of hands of who had completed the book, the truth came out. Not only had I not read it, but neither had the rest of the class. Only one single student, the smartest girl in our school, had, had read the whole book as assigned. And so my teacher, Miss Roberts, she was understandably livid with us because we had all committed to read this over the summer. We didn't do it. And she was just about ready to fail all of us when she decided that she would do something else. She made all of us meet with her at the front of the class individually to tell her how much of the book we had, <clears throat> that we had read so that we could at least get partial credit based on the reading that we had done. And it turned out there were a lot of students who'd read half the book or more. And so the, when the, uh, so the assignment turned out not to be a total wash for them, but I hadn't even done that much. And so I was really embarrassed that I would have to confess to her how little of it I had actually read. So when it was my turn to go up to the front and stand before her, what I thought I'd do is I'd just sort of talk my way out of it. I'd sort of shuck and jive until she, you know, sort of forgot about it. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But I was confident that I was going to be charming enough to talk my way out of it. And um, I was ready to say anything except what she actually wanted to know, which was how many pages I had read. And I will never forget what happened next. Um, I'm standing there in front of her, and she says, how many pages do you read? And I go into my whole shuck and jive. And 
she wasn't having it. And this is the South in Louisiana 20-something years ago, and this is just the way things are. She grabbed my stomach. She grabbed, like, flesh, and she twisted. I don't know if you've ever had anybody grab your stomach right there and twist. It hurts really bad. And um, it was so bad, I just doubled over in pain. I stopped talking because I said, ha, ha, And um, she said, how many pages? She let up, and then she said, how many pages? And I started my shuck and jive thing, and she just twisted again. <laughs> and uh, I doubled over again, and so I realized I was not going to win this. And uh, finally, I, I confessed the paltry number of pages that I had read, and it was embarrassing, but she got it out of me. But the bottom line was this. I didn't read the book because I had chosen to do other things. That's the bottom line. I was lazy and didn't do it. I want you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to take a break from what I've been preaching through, which is 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at a text on laziness. Proverbs chapter 24 and verses 30 through 34. It turns out that not all laziness is due to the desire to have an excessive amount of sleep or rest. Sometimes that's the reason that we are lazy. That's not the only reason. The term for laziness in Proverbs 24 is a word that's used only in the book of Proverbs. And sometimes it's contrasted with those who are diligent in their work. And that kind of helps us understand what the author is talking about here. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 4 says that the soul of the lazy person craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Which means the opposite of laziness is diligence. And there can be more than one reason that a person fails to be diligent and then chooses to be lazy. Some people are sluggardly because they like to take their ease. Other folks are lazy because they like to take their leisure. It's not that they're inactive all the time. It's that they like to be active at their amusements rather than their work. And so you can find them playing computer games while they're at work, you will find them perhaps on the golf course for a third time in a week rather than taking care of their home. Or they may be vegging out on, in front of their television rather than engaging with their kids. Or they will be making themselves into a kind of a hero on their social media profiles while their spouse feels like they're about to die of emotional isolation. And so the lazy person prefers his leisure to his duty, and it shows in his life. And so the question that every person has to ask himself is this. Do I prefer my leisure to my duty? Now, don't, don't misunderstand me here. Almost everybody prefers leisure to going in and putting in their 40 hours of week at work or whatever it is their responsibility to do. But when that preference becomes a choice, it becomes a problem in your life. Are you regularly choosing your leisure over your duty? Do you neglect your duty so that you can serve your leisure, whether in resting or ease or in amusements? 
distractions? Do you regularly cut corners at work or at home with your family so that you can take your ease? The proverb says that that kind of behavior is foolishness and will end up ruining your life. Now, as we come to Proverbs 24, it's an important thing to remember uh, what Proverbs are. They are designed to give you wisdom. They are not promises. They are wise observations about life that sometimes have exceptions to them. Not all people who are poor are lazy. And not all people who are prosperous are diligent. It's just not the case. But generally speaking, diligence and industry bring increase and reward. And laziness and slothfulness bring want and regret. That's what the Proverbs are teaching, generally speaking. You ignore those principles at your own peril because that is how God has made the world. He has made it for our industry and work that we are to keep it. It's a creation ordinance. And to slack off from those duties is foolishness. The wise person knows this. And this proverb is designed to show the wise person how to avoid the ruin that comes from laziness. And so Proverbs 24, in these five verses at the end of the chapter, they give us five observations about laziness, five things that you need to know in order to avoid this particular pitfall. Here are the, here are the, the five things that you need to know. You need to know where laziness comes from in verse 30. You need to know what laziness looks like, verse 31. Know how to learn from the laziness of others, verse 32. Know how lazy people justify themselves, verse 33, and know where laziness leads to in verse 34. So the first thing here in verse 30 is to know where laziness comes from. Look what he says in verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Now that verse sets the scene for the entire passage. The picture is of a man who owns a piece of property that is called a field, but it's not just any field. He specifies in the second line that it's a vineyard. So it's not an uninhabited field. It's a place where grapes are supposed to be growing. And so that means that the man who owns the field is a kind of a farmer. But note that he's not just any kind of farmer. My translation says that this man is a sluggard, and we all know what a sluggard is. It's a lazy person, someone who's allergic to work. It's a person who prefers taking his ease over performing his duty. And as you might imagine, this is a really bad deal because farming and laziness go together like oil and water. They just don't mix. It doesn't work. Vineyards don't just grow themselves like wildflowers and blackberries. You have to work the ground and the vines or there will be no crop. So here's this vineyard, and the man in charge of it is a sluggard. He's a lazy person. That means that the man in charge is actually not really in charge. He's a slacker. He doesn't do what it's his responsibility to do, which is to tend his vineyard. And the author clearly identifies where this laziness comes from. This is what I want you to see. The first line describes the man by his actions, calls him a sluggard. The second line defines him by his heart. My translation says he's a man lacking sense. But literally, he's a man who lacks heart. 
That's what it says. This is a person, therefore, who has the means and has the ability to take care of his vineyard, but he just doesn't want to do it. The problem is not with his muscles. The problem is with his heart. This was a lesson that Jesus took great pains to teach his followers. In Mark chapter 7, you remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they reproached Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate? And so how does Jesus respond to them? He's, you know, the Pharisees were saying that if you don't wash your hands before you eat, it's going to make you unclean. Jesus says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Our deepest spiritual problem is something that's within us. And Jesus says, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, inverse slander, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Where does foolishness come from? The heart. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Foolishness comes from the heart, according to Jesus. And in proverbial wisdom, one of the chief species of foolishness is laziness. The truth is that all of us have a vineyard, which means we have areas of responsibility over which God has given us charge. For some of you, it's school. For some of you, it's work. For all of us, to some extent, it's family. It's the relationships that God has given us in this church and in all of those other spheres. And you will be overcome at different times with the temptation to choose your leisure over your duty in those various spheres of responsibility that you have in your life. All of us are wrestling with this to one degree or another. And to just sort of let things go, that will be the temptation. And so sometimes you'll know that you've got that project to do at your house or at work, but you keep putting it off. You don't have time to do it. And maybe you have time for golf or Xbox or whatever, but you don't have time to take care of your home. And what this proverb is saying is that in that case, that's evidence of a person who lacks heart. You know what you ought to be doing, but you just don't want to do it. And the Bible calls that foolishness and says that it comes from your heart. So here's the question. Do you know where laziness comes from? It comes from the heart. The wise person is the one who is vigilant over his own heart so that at all times he's cultivating a work ethic that is pleasing to Jesus. That's why I had read in the New Testament reading Colossians 3, uh, 23 to 25. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
ultimately your responsibility in all of your various spheres of influence and of and all your little vineyards, okay? Your ultimate allegiance is not to your boss, but to Jesus. You're ultimately serving him. And so what is your heart disposition supposed to be in all of those areas of responsibility? As Christians, we are to be known for our excellence in whatever we put our hands to. It's not because we're necessarily smarter or more talented than other people that we set our minds to excellence. It's, it's, it's because we know about elbow grease and about getting a job done right. We do our work heartily because we are not serving men but God. So that's what we do. So do you know where laziness comes from? This text says it comes from the heart. How is your heart on these things? Is your heart in the right place when it comes to all these various spheres of responsibility? So know where laziness comes from, but also know what laziness looks like. Look at verse 31. So he sees the vineyard of the sluggard, and this is what he says. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And so the author's describing the vineyard of this lazy person. And instead of being cultivated and pruned, this vineyard is completely overgrown with weeds. There are thistles, there are nettles growing up all over the place and choking out the vines. Not only that, he says that the wall that surrounds this vineyard is broken down. Why would you need a wall? Well, walls are there for protection. A wall keeps animals and people from walking across and trampling the vineyard. With the wall down, the vineyard is vulnerable to invaders from the outside. And so this is what happens to a vineyard when a lazy person is in charge. It looks more like a garbage heap than a grape harvest. It is overgrown and it becomes worthless at that point. So what does laziness look like? It looks like disarray, disorder, and destruction. Can you recognize that when you see it? Have you ever noticed that imperfections become less and less obvious to you the longer that you live with them? Uh, I've noticed this just in being a homeowner. It's really, it's, it, it's kind of like that crack in the wall at your house that you pass by every day. You know it's there, but you've gotten so used to it that you don't even notice it any, anymore. Other people who come into your house will notice it, but you'll walk right past that crack every day without giving it another thought. You don't even see it anymore. And so the familiarity breeds forgetfulness. It's the kind of the same thing with laziness. Think about the, the spheres of responsibility that you have in your life. Think about your family. Think about this church. Think about your work. Think about all those things. Your family is your primary sphere of concern. Perhaps you've, perhaps you've never seen what diligence looks like in a family. Maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional family, and so maybe you've never seen a dad who's fully engaged with his children. Maybe you've never seen a husband and a wife who love each other and who care for each other. All you saw growing up was dysfunction and destruction in the family, and so now you don't think twice about applying a slack hand to your own family, and you kind of don't notice when things are dysfunctional in your own 
family. And perhaps you get fully engaged with other things like Netflix or video games or whatever. But your kids can't seem to hold your attention for any amount of time. And that crack is there. Every other people can see it, but you're not seeing it. You're constantly engaged with other things. But you can't find two interrupted minutes to listen to your spouse. So the patterns of your life and the choices that you make are leading to disarray and disorder in your own family, but maybe you don't recognize it because it's all you've ever known. For whatever reason, you've just gotten used to it. Do you know what laziness looks like in your vineyard? That's the question. Do you even have in your mind a a vision for what diligence would look like in your vineyard? When it comes to your finances, maybe you don't make a lot of money. But are you diligent to be a good steward over what you do have? Do you have a budget and a plan? Or do you just sort of fly by the seat of your pants? Would you have the knowledge to know the difference? So so test yourself here. I mean, there's just all kinds of little areas that all of us need to tighten up in. Test yourself. Can you recognize areas in your life that are marked by disarray and disorder and and destruction? Seeing the problem is the first step to addressing the problem. Can you see it or have you grown so used to the disorder that you don't notice it? So you got to know where laziness comes from. You got to know what laziness looks like. And three, you've got to know how to learn from the laziness of others. Everybody look at verse 32. Sees the vineyard, sees the disarray. Verse 32, when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. Now think about this. This writer is just looking at somebody's vineyard, okay? He's never met the owner of the vineyard. There's not any evidence of that. How does this author know that the owner of the vineyard is a lazy man? He just starts off by calling him a lazy person. How does he know he's lazy? He's never met him. Because he looks at the state of the man's vineyard. And he makes a judgment about the character of the vineyard's owner. The author may never have even seen the guy who owns the vineyard. Nevertheless, this author knows that the problem is not the vineyard. The problem is the vineyard's owner. The author says that he, see, he saw the lazy man's vineyard and learned from it. Whereas the lazy man, it said in, in verse 30, he lacks heart. It says literally here, he says he set his heart to understand this and to gain wisdom from the situation. The foolish person lacks heart. The wise person sets his heart to understand it. He's learning, the wise person is learning what not to do by observing the state of this man's vineyard. What do you think when you drive past a house and the grass is way too tall? Maybe it's my house. (laughs) Uh, There's Denny's house. Um, What do you think if you drive past a house and there's a rusty old car in the front lawn? There's garbage on the side of the house because no one's bothered to take it out to the street for trash day in three weeks. Do you think highly of the owners when you see that, even if you've never met the owners? Do you think these are the kinds of people that we need to put in charge of something? 
That's not what you think. Do you realize that people are looking at your vineyard all the time and are making judgments about you? And this proverb is saying that they're supposed to be doing that. You may think that the haphazard way that you approach your vineyard is no big deal. Or maybe your assignments for class or the way you do your work at your job. You may think it's no big deal or that your unhappy, neglected spouse is no big deal. This text is telling us it's a really big deal. People are making judgments about you and your character based on the state of your vineyard. So you have to be asking yourself, is my vineyard a cautionary tale like this man's vineyard? Or is it a model and encouragement to people for diligence and excellence? Which is it? Word gets out about how you do things. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Which means, just as an unkept vineyard gets noticed, so also a well-kept vineyard gets noticed. And if you work with diligence and excellence, people will take notice. Kings will take notice. And they'll begin to rely on you and to seek you out. The opposite will be the case if your vineyard is in disorder or disarray. Are you the kind of person that people seek out to take on responsibility? Or do folks generally know that they can't trust you? People are looking at your vineyard. What are they concluding about you by what they see? Know where laziness comes from. Know what laziness looks like. Know how to learn from the laziness of others. Know, fourth, know how lazy people justify themselves. Oh, this gets in our business here. Verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Now notice that verse 33 is in quotation marks. It's in quotation marks because these are the words that the sluggard speaks while his vineyard goes to ruin. His words are an attempt to justify himself. How does he justify himself? He does it with excuses. He's not doing what he ought to be doing. And so he defends himself in his own mind by saying, well, it's just a little bit of sleep, just a little bit of slumber, a little extra you know, sleep here until 10.30 a.m. every morning. That never hurt anybody. What he doesn't realize is that day after day of a little bit of laziness adds up to a whole lot of neglect. But he doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it that way at all. His vineyard is in ruins, but he still sees it as just a little bit of extra sleep. So what's the big deal? So... We're, this is where it gets into our business here, okay? Because we're all prone to defend ourselves and to rationalize bad behavior, aren't we? The problem is that the more extreme our behavior is, the more absurd our excuses sound. They may not sound absurd to us, but they sound absurd to everyone else. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 13 through 16 say this. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. 
As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Notice the absurdity of the excuse. I can't go outside and go to work. There's a lion out there. I might get eaten. I have to stay in bed so I won't get eaten by lions. That's ridiculous, okay? <laughs> the, the, the absurdity of this excuse doesn't phase the sluggard. He is so given over to his foolishness that he begins to believe his own ridiculous self-justifications. It says that he's wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. He believes his own justifications, his own excuses. You can tell him that he needs to get his act together, but he's not going to listen to you because he is, according to Proverbs, a fool. And fools don't listen to wisdom. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 27.22, though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, Yet his folly will not depart from him. It's not that the fool can't learn from a rebuke. It's that he won't learn from a rebuke. He just feels like he has to keep holding on to his own web of self-justifications so that he can keep on doing what he has always done. Nothing. How many of you, you know, you're listening to this and you're hearing me say these things and... Maybe you're thinking I'm describing some things in your vineyard. And how many of you immediately began to think of ways to excuse yourself? This text is encouraging us that, that we need to know our own heart well enough not to be deceived by our own attempts to save face. It may seem like slothfulness is only a small matter Maybe you think, well, this is just the way I do things. But what this text is teaching us is that you're forming your character now. If you establish patterns of neglect and sloth now, it will be very difficult to break those patterns later. Remember that day after day of a little bit of laziness adds up to a lot of neglect. And so how are you doing in your vineyard? If someone were to inspect your spheres of responsibility, would they find diligence and competence or would they find excuses? Could you listen to the wisdom of a brother or sister who challenges you to do better? Or would you drown them with a flood of absurd excuses? So know where laziness comes from. Know what it looks like. Know how to learn from the laziness of others. Know how lazy people tend to justify themselves so you can recognize it in yourself when it comes up. And then the last thing is you need to know what, where laziness leads to. And this is verse 34. This is the conclusion. If you add up those excuses and you have a whole lot of neglect in your vineyard, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Where does laziness lead to? It leads to poverty and want. This farmer's whole livelihood depended on the fruitfulness of this vineyard. When he let it die, he let devastation into his life. Now he has no crop, no money, no way of providing for himself. His laziness led him to utter ruin. 
And because he had been justifying his laziness for so long, he was surprised when the disaster came into his life. His poverty came like a robber or an armed man. That means it happened to him unexpectedly and in a way that he couldn't resist. He didn't know where his laziness was leading him to, but when it happened, there was nothing he could do about it. Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 6 through 11 is a parallel text to this one. And in that text, Solomon describes um, not a sluggard, but an industrious worker, the ant. And the ant's industry is a warning to the sluggard. It says this. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. Do you know where laziness will lead you to? It will lead you to places that you do not want to go to. If you are slothful with your classwork, what's going to happen when you need a professor to write a recommendation for you? If you're slothful at your job, what's going to happen when the opportunity for promotions pass you by? If you're lazy in your home, what's going to happen to your marriage? You know what I've discovered? Good marriages don't grow in the wild like blackberries. They have to be tended. They have to be worked on. You have to repent and forgive and work. Because good marriages will happen on purpose. Bad marriages will happen by default. These are things you have to work on and you can't give up at. So here are the questions to ask yourself about all this. Do you know where laziness comes from? Do you know what it looks like when you see it? Especially in your own life. Your own life. Do you know how to learn from the laziness of others? Do you know how lazy people tend to justify themselves? And therefore how you might tend to justify yourself? And do you know where this leads to? Maybe you've never had a high school teacher perpetrate a medieval torture maneuver on you for failing an assignment. But my hunch is that many of you know what it means to wrestle with slothfulness and neglect in different areas of your vineyard. And maybe a, a sermon like this one would leave you feeling more guilty than helped. And, and that's really not my aim. Because the, the, the truth is, is that, that, that none of us measures up to what God wants us to be. We've all fallen one way or the other and we're all in desperate need for someone to help us. And we all have places where we need to shore up. And the gospel addresses us in slothfulness and in neglect in at least two ways. Number one, the gospel alone soothes a guilty conscience. If you hear this and it makes you feel guilty and shameful, well, you're not by yourself. Makes me feel that way too, <laughs> okay? And 
probably more people than you would realize in here feel the same way. We're all sinners. We all offend a holy God. But Jesus Christ was crucified and raised to reconcile us to God. So that we would never, because we could never reconcile ourselves to him. And the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, because of our foolishness, Jesus took upon himself and he was resurrected from the grave and he offers us eternal life if we'll just repent of our sins and believe in him. So the gospel, the gospel addresses a guilty conscience in these areas. But the gospel also alone gives us power to change in these areas. Thanks be to God who made us obedient from the heart, right? Once we have been Gripped by this message, we are changed by this message. And even though we may have failures yesterday and today, we don't have to live in them tomorrow and the next day. And the gospel promises that kind of renewal to us through the Holy Spirit. And that's the message of the gospel to us when it comes to our laziness. Father, I do pray that you would make us diligent Make us industrious, even in the holiday season when um, schedules are different and there are more times for leisure. I pray that we would enjoy leisure in its proper measure and that we would enjoy and be faithful in our work in proper measure. And that we would be diligent and take caring for our family and our relationships every single day. And that, Father, you would sustain in us a renewed resolve to be faithful and industrious and to work and to not flag in zeal. Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is so clear to us. And we thank you for the gospel, which saves and changes us. And we thank you for Jesus, who made it all possible. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.